Well, guys, we had a sad night over at the Eisman House this week, one that we didn't see coming. And honestly, if I had seen it coming, I probably wouldn't have perceived it as being sad. But it was. Some of you know her because I used her in a talk some time back. But this week, our, well, what we now realize, our beloved cockatiel, Mo, died. Now, we didn't see it coming because... On the life expectancy chart for cockatiels, Mo wasn't that old. I mean, she was on the back nine, but she was like on hole 10. She wasn't walking up 18. And, and the second thing was, that was at least unexpected, well, for me anyway, was sadness, like the sadness over her loss. Now, I know that sounds terrible, but I want you to know that I'm not that bad a person. I don't even kill bugs. I scoop them into little cups and take them outside. But Look, I'm just being honest. When you have a bird in your house for over a decade, there is a part of you, a large part of you, that, that begins to look forward to not having a, a feathered pooping machine living in the family room. Yet, Tuesday night, when she suddenly fell to the bottom of her cage and she couldn't get up, well, we wound up taking turns holding her on our chest and, and petting her head because you could just tell it, it wasn't going to end well. My son, Caleb, whose bird it was, it was his first pet, he came racing home from Morristown and, and he held his bird as Mo at one point literally slowly put her head down on Caleb's chest and peacefully passed away. And then the unexpected happened, at least for me. Some moist eyes, a couple of tears. Sadness began to, began to kind of pervade the house. I, I went from looking forward to the day she was going to be gone to wishing that I had been, well, to wishing that I had been a better bird dad. Now, why do I tell you all this? I mean, why would I risk the ridicule from my friends or the turning in of my man card by telling you that I shed a tear over the death of a bird? I mean, that's going to blow my, you know, hard-won tough guy image. Well, the reason is, as I sat there Tuesday night amidst all of the tears and sorrow, guess what came instantly to my mind? Another one of Jesus' questions. Welcome, guys, to week two of our new series, Questions Jesus Asked That We Ought to Answer. Now, here's what we discovered last week. We come to church, we come to God, we come looking for answers to all of our questions. And we have lots of good, hard questions about life and death, about which direction to go, what path to take. And we've been brought up to believe that God's role is to answer those questions. That's his job. And so we go to church or, or we search the scriptures looking for those answers. Yet, there is likely something we are much more, well, likely to find than an answer. It's another question. It turns out we might have missed a key relational dynamic in how we relate to God. We need to change perhaps what we expect from Him. Because the truth is that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record that Jesus asks lots of questions, 307 of them to be precise. And by, by contrast, he, He's only asked 183. <laughs> And remarkably, of the 183 questions people came to Jesus with, and remember, these are good, hard questions, questions just like ours. Well, according to two published studies, Jesus directly answers just three. And so, 
today, I want to look at this series of four four questions that Jesus strings together in rapid succession. Questions he asked and why they're super important. In fact, this is interesting. These questions, they come as part of Jesus' longest discourse on any human emotion. Now, I want you to think about that, right? In light of all of the other possibilities. Because Jesus walked the earth, he was fully human, fully God. Jesus not only knows about our emotions, he's experienced them, he's felt them. And it's with that knowledge and familiarity, he could have chosen to talk most extensively about sadness or fear, grief, loneliness, shame. How about the other side of the coin? He could have talked at great length about positive emotions like happiness, love, or gratitude. And and, and he does address all of those things. But Jesus' longest discourse about any human emotion, you know what it's reserved for? It's reserved, well, any guesses? Before I I tell you, let me start with one of these questions uh, on this specific emotion that came to my mind Tuesday night amidst all of the sorrow. It was recorded by Matthew. Jesus said and asked, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the question. Are you not much more valuable than they? Which I think when Jesus asked it, it was a rhetorical question. I think that for two reasons. The first is based on its form. He doesn't just ask you. He implies the answer. Are are you not much more valuable than they? The second reason is, is the audience to which Jesus was addressing the question. They actually knew the answer because from the time they were little children, they had memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the Torah gave the answer. Most of you guys know this. In the creation story in Genesis, God creates the stars in the skies, the oceans, and then the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the creatures of the ground. And he calls them at the end of each day of creation good. But he creates man differently. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. It's not just that God gives man rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And on the day God made him, he did not deem it good. He saw it and proclaimed that it was very good. Yet, here's what I fear. I I fear today after so many of us have been told for so long that creation's just random, that there isn't any intelligent design at work here or designer, and we're more or less just celestial goo that happened to coalesce correctly, I'm not sure that this question today is is received as rhetorically as Jesus meant it to be. So let Jesus ask you a question. Are you not more valuable than the birds of the air? Because how you answer that question is going to impact this primary emotion that Jesus is talking about. Next question. Is not, again, meant to be rhetorical, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? In other words, and again, remember the audience, it's an audience that lived in an agrarian society where enough food for the day was less than certain, and clothes on your back couldn't just be Amazon Prime to you tomorrow. Jesus might ask it this way today, is life 
not more important than your 401k? Is, is life not more important than your job, your savings? Is, is life not more important than getting married and finding Mr. and Mrs. Wright? Is life not more important than your kid making varsity? I mean, all of these things. Is that all that life is? Is life merely having things, having your needs met, being healthy? Is that life, or again, and we need to answer this, or is life more than just that? Is it more than merely having our needs met and our health good? And so right there, there are two questions, right? And what do they have in common? More specifically, what, what emotion was Jesus trying to get at with this rapid succession of questions? Well, he gets to the point with his third one. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Amazing, right? Of all the human emotions, Jesus saves this, his longest discourse about any single emotion, for worry. In fact, the last question remains as rhetorical today as it was 2,000 years ago. Can any of you really, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? But even if it's rhetorical, it's a real question. And look, as divided as a people as we are today, I think all of us would answer this very real question the same way. No, we can't do that. I mean, we know worry isn't actually going to add anything. In fact, most of us know now the science behind worry is that it's going to wind up shortening our lives. And so then here comes the next question. Since it's not doing anything for you, why do you worry? Why do you worry specifically, Jesus says, about clothes? And in, in this instance, he chooses clothes, but he's already laid out for us things like food, things like life and death. The one question at the heart of the four questions that has to deal with one very problematic human emotion is this, and I'm not sure any of us have ever sat around and reflected on it, let alone tried to answer it, but here's the question at the root of every one of those questions. Why do you worry? Why? I mean, think about it, right? This is, I have to... I have to think it's going to be the question that comes back from Jesus to us in response to many of the questions we ask him. Many, if not all of them, are born out of worry. Jesus, will you help me get the job? Jesus, will you help me get the girl? Jesus, will you help me get the guy? Jesus, will you help me get the promotion? Jesus, will you protect my kids? Many of us on both sides of the political divide have been asking Jesus, will you protect our country? In regards to our health, Jesus, will you heal me? I find a, a new lump or a new mole. Jesus, will you let it not be cancer? I mean, gosh, have you, have you ever not felt right or felt something was wrong and got on WebMD? I mean, it should be called WorryMD, not WebMD. If I believe what I self-diagnosed myself with on WebMD, I would have been dead five years ago from a myriad of causes. And, and so look, this question, in, in light of all these worries, because we have valid worries. It can seem, well, like last week's, almost cruel, let's be honest. Jesus, why do I worry? What do you mean, why do I worry? I worry because I got a bad review at work. I worry because my job is tenuous in this economy. I worry because COVID is rampant and seems to be getting worse. I worry because this spot, it wasn't here before. I worry because my kids' grades aren't going to get them in the school that they need to be. I worry because Trump got voted in. I worry because Biden got vo voted in. I worry because my neighbor's house is for sale and who knows who's going to move in next door. 
I mean, guys, you name it, to the, to the number of human worries, there is no end. What do you mean, Jesus, why do I worry? Seems like a stupid question. Until you hear Jesus' reasoning. See, in regards to the birds of the air, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. You know what he means? I think he means literally. Seriously, in the midst of all of your worry, look at them. Consider them. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. And so what's the point? Well, it's the question. Are you not more valuable than they? Of course you are. And by extension, if God provides for them, do you not think he would not provide for you? In fact, the same logic in regards to clothes. Jesus says, see how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Again, look at how God adorns the flowers of the field. Aren't you more valuable to God than the flowers? Of course you are. So why do we worry? Well, according to Jesus, we worry in some relative proportion to our faith. You, he says, of little faith. Now, important to, to note here, having little faith is not a disqualifying event for those who are following Jesus. The Gospels are littered with people. Heck, the Gospels are filled with disciples of little faith. In fact, this same Matthew that records this story, he goes on to record Jesus saying that you only need the faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain, which leads me to believe that worry might be a bigger obstacle to us, that worry might be a greater threat to us than any so-called mountain that the world could ever put in your way. And that's why Jesus says, so. So, so in light of how God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, in light of the fact that we would all agree you are worth so much more, do not worry. Do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. And then he gives two reasons why. For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. One, the pagans run after these things and two, your heavenly father knows you need them. Now that first point, the pagans run after these things, that wasn't meant by Jesus to be an insult. The word pagan obviously has taken on some baggage, but when he's referring to pagans, he's, he's simply referring to people who don't claim to have any kind of personal relationship with a knowable God, or as Jesus would put it, a heavenly father. Of course people don't, who don't have a relationship with a heavenly father are going to chase after these things. Honestly, just to be fair to them, how else would they think they're going to get those things unless they pursue those things? It's all on them. And you see, here's what worry does. Worry makes you chase after or run from, or maybe most dangerously, run to things. This is why so many of us feel so tired, like we live life on this hamster wheel. Worry almost always leads us down a path towards idolatry. The highway of worry, it almost always ends at the feet of other gods. Now, how do I know this? Why do I say this? Well, it's interesting because this whole discourse, this giant discourse on worry, remember now, this is the longest single one Jesus gave on any human emotion. He begins it this way. Therefore, I tell you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will, what you will wear. Now again, this is how he begins. This is not how he ends. So all of this on worry is there for whatever came before that therefore. And that is this very famous teaching, no one, no one, that would mean all of us, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do you see what's happening? Do not worry because worry is going to serve, is going to get you to be devoted to a different master. You cannot serve God and money. In the Greek in which this was written, that word there translated money is the word mammon, which means more than just money. It means property and possessions. You know what worry is going to do? Worry is going to get you to act, to serve, and to be enslaved by your stuff. And you will wind up, you who, who, who have a heavenly father, you will wind up being just like people who don't know God at all because that's what happens to them. Their life winds up, con consists of their stuff. This is why Jesus says, doesn't your life consist of more than this? Do you see the danger of worry? We don't just worry because of little faith. Worry leads us to put our faith in the wrong places and the wrong people and masters, which leads us to the second reason Jesus commands. He does not suggest, he commands we not worry. The first is that the pagans run after these things. You, like them, will wind up devoted to wrong gods. Your life will wind up consisting of the pursuit of mammon. You know your life is more valuable than that. And here's the second. The second is this. Your heavenly Father knows that you need those things. Your heavenly Father, Jesus says, Notice his wording, not just God, but he, he chooses to use much more intimate language here. Your heavenly father, your daddy. Your dad knows you need them. And I have to tell you, this is what I heard in my head on, on Tuesday night. John, you're, you're weeping, you're tearing up over this bird over here, and you weren't even a good bird dad. You didn't even think you like the bird. John, do you feel your affection for that bird? Well, if that's the way you, a bad bird dad, feels about that bird, John, do you have any idea? John, can you get a glimpse right now of how I feel about you? Because you are worth infinitely more to me than that bird. And so, John, don't worry. I know everything you need. I know everything you need, and I'm your dad. But, Jesus says, seek first, before all of these other things, be devoted to, instead, his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of those things will be given to you as well. In other words, seek the building of God's kingdom first, not yours. If you would do that, John, if you, if you would, by faith, love God by loving your neighbor well, heck, not just your neighbor, by loving your enemy well, John, if you would begin to focus and be devoted to and build my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, 
by being an agent of love and justice and mercy and forgiveness. If you would devote yourself to those things instead, if John, if you would worry first about my kingdom, then you can rest assured I will worry about yours. And then he concludes, Therefore, therefore, based on all of this, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love this. First thing I love about it is, though I wish it weren't true, Jesus is just being honest. He never says there won't be trouble. He says each day has enough trouble of its own. This is just one last do not worry command, though. This time it's not about food or clothes. It's about, and this might be the most powerful one, it's about tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow. You ever notice the thing about worry is this? Worry steals your opportunities today. Often it paralyzes you today by overwhelming you today with the worries of tomorrow. I, I can't enjoy today. How do you want me to enjoy today? Because I'm worried about tomorrow. I, I can't get out of this toxic relationship today because, well, what happens if I wind up alone tomorrow? Well, I can't go to the gym today. I can't start that diet today. I mean, why would I? Because I know I'll probably quit or fail tomorrow. Well, I can't get on a budget today because there'll be some unforeseen expense that's going to come along and blow it tomorrow. I can't change my job today because I might not have the security then tomorrow. I mean, this is so pervasive in our lives. I can't apologize to my spouse today because, you know what, they might take advantage of that tomorrow. I can't forgive my brother today because he might think that what he did was okay and then he might do it again tomorrow. I can't be thankful for all I've, I've got, all I've been given, all that God has allowed me to achieve, to achieve all of the, the good in my life today. I can't be thankful today. You know why? Because I am too worried that it all might go away tomorrow. Isn't it both ironic and at the same time just kind of amazing that it has now been proven over and over that the one thing, check this out online, the one thing that science has proven helps overcome worry and anxiety more than any other thing is gratitude. And what robs gratitude? Worry. How can I have gratitude if I'm worried I might not have what it is I'm thankful for tomorrow? Well, Jesus says, here's the answer. Have you considered the birds of the air? And when you do that, remember, you have a heavenly father. And he loves you much more than those. And he knows exactly what it is you need. See, Jesus asks so many questions and spends so much time on worry because worry is a liar. Worry is a liar about today. Worry is a thief of your tomorrow. Worry leads to idolatry and enslavement to all kinds of other gods. And make no mistake about it. Those other gods use worry like a carpenter uses his saw to shape you, to mold you, to move you, and to get you to serve them. Friends, I, I want you to be aware, everybody is trying to get you to worry about something. Why? Because if they can get you worried about tomorrow, they can get you to forget about today. They can forget you to forget about what your heavenly father has done, where he's come through for you, how he's provided for you and led you and guided you and been with you. And instead, they will use the fear they instill in you 
to try and get you to move your faith to something else. Marketers use it. Advertisers use it. Corporations use it. Politicians use it. This is the most important election of our lifetimes. Girlfriends use it. Boyfriends use it. Bosses use it. I challenge you, this week, watch the news every night. What is it full of? And it comes from both sides. Every night on the news, you should be worried. Oh, you should be very worried. Oh, this is so bad. You ought to be very worried. You see, when we worry about tomorrow, we forget about today. And we look kind of like a dog wandering with a, lo a loose leash. We look to, to hook it up to some other kind of savior. Somebody else that, that will, will provide for you what you're looking for. It could be as silly as a watch, as meaningless as a car, as fleeting as an investment, a politician, a party, which will lead you like that dog on a chain to a place you don't want to be. And one of the most haunting stories in the scriptures contains, well, believe it or not, and you should believe it by now, it contains one of the, the most haunting questions in all of the Bible, and that's the story I want to close with. It's in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Israel's great prophet Elijah, God had raised them up to confront an ancient king named Ahab and his wife, who you've probably heard of, named Jezebel. We're introduced to him as he comes to those two and prophesies that it will not rain until he says so. And he's doing that, hoping that this would cause the people and, and their king and queen to turn back to God. This goes on for some time. Three years. Now, you can imagine the damage this drought is doing the land for three years. There's severe famine. And in the interim, during this story... There, there's nothing but details about God providing miraculously for Elijah. And not only, only that, but one instance, Elijah asked God to bring back to life a child that died, and God hears Elijah and moves. The child come back, comes back to life. And so it was, as he considered his birds of the air, right? His birds of the air in this instance, how God had come through for him in all of his yesterdays that God sends now Elijah, full of confidence, with little worry. He sends him up to confront the king and the queen and the people about the nature of their devotion to another god. In fact, he's so confident, he proposes a challenge to the king, who was, well, caught up in the idolatry of being devoted to another god, a god in the story called Baal. And so, Elijah tells the king, look, here's what we'll do. Prepare two sacrifices and set them on altars of wood, but don't set fire to it. Here's the challenge. We're each going to call on our gods for our needs. In this case, fire, right? And whichever god answers with fire, whichever god rains down fire, well, that'll be the real god. And so, here's the story. What happens is 900 prophets of Baal build their altar, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And nothing, nothing happens. Now, listen to confident Elijah. He begins to taunt them. Shout a little louder, he said. Surely he's, he's God. Perhaps he's in a deep thought or maybe busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he's got to be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. 
Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Well, of course not. I mean, you and I know this because every false idol we have ever pursued, placed our hope in, it never comes through for us either. In fact, Elijah is so convinced about his God, he's so full of trust in God that he tells them to go and soak the wood, not one time, but three times. So, so that the wood is, is so much so that the water, the scriptures say, the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all of the water in the trench. And when all of the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Which is amazing, right? I mean, that's, that's amazing in light of Elijah's yesterdays. In light of what the people had experienced today and what they just experienced, everybody now knows who God is and that he can be trusted. But, but check this out. There is only one thing that amidst all of this could rob Elijah and everyone of their peace. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. And you know what she told him? May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of all of them. Dead. Tomorrow. In light of it all, all God had done, there was only one thing that could destroy him, and Jezebel knew it, and so does every enemy, every adversary you have in this present world and the spiritual world to come worries about tomorrow. Elijah, that's great. Tomorrow you die. And what happened when confronted with this one thing, with worry about tomorrow? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You see, that's what worry does. In fact, his worry about tomorrow leads him and leads you and I to dark places. The story gets picked up about 100 miles away where he's run to. He, he came to a, a broom bush, sat down under it, and listened to what he prayed. He prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm, I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay under the bush and fell asleep. Guys, this is the power worry can have in your life. Do you see that? Can you, can you feel it? This is why Jesus asks so many questions to us about worry. He knows the power it has over us, and he knows the places where it's going to lead us. And if, if you don't feel it, well, then wrestle with this one last question that might help. After some time, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah? What are you doing here? What are you doing under a bush and in a cave? What are you doing wanting to die? What are you doing here? Which is a pretty familiar question, right? You remember God, God said to Adam and Eve right after the fall, right after they gave up on trusting God with their tomorrows, Adam, what are you doing in that bush? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. God knows where Adam is. God knows why Elijah's here. And so why does he ask him? He asks Elijah for the same reason he asks us 
about birds and flowers and life. He wants Elijah to think and reflect. Why, why am I here? How, how did I get here? I know better than this. I don't want to stay here. See, I love the question because I think it's the same way, the same one that God would show up and ask us in the caves, in our caves, and the dark places that worry leads us to. The false places, the, the people, the empty promises of purpose and security and power that we run off to. Do you see what worry about tomorrow can do to your todays? And so let him ask you, what are you doing here? In that job, in, in that relationship, in that bed, in that bar, in that hotel, in that kind of debt, in that expensive a car, in that big a house. Where is it that your worry over your tomorrows has led you to? To what false idols has worry made you devote yourself to? Actually, again, I couldn't help but apply it corporately to us as a country here in the U.S. over these last weeks and months. In all of our division and rancor and intolerance of one another, I can't help but wonder if God looks at it and goes, what are you doing here? Look where you've let worry lead you. Worry will destroy you. It will destroy us, and it will lead us to dark places of despair. And hope, which is right where people who do not have your best interests in mind long to move and manipul manipulate you too. So what do you do? Well, it's simple. Answer Jesus' questions. You could do it every morning. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Of course it is. There's more to life than our stuff. There's more to life uh, than, than all of it. So stop being so devoted to it. Can any of you by worrying at a single hour of your life? Well, the answer is no. So stop worrying about tomorrow because it's going to steal your peace today. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown in a fire, won't he clothe you much more? I mean, how much more will he answer the question? And finally, there's this. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? You are. And look, here's what I learned Tuesday night, right? If a fool like me could tear up over a bird like Mo, can you only imagine how your Father in heaven feels about you? Have faith, my friends. Your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father, already knows what you need. And now before it's too late for you, for us, for all of us, before you, us, and all of us wind up in a place where we don't want to go and be, where we wind up devoted to someone or something we never should have, today, maybe for the first time, today, based on your yesterday, so you can live in and enjoy today, do not worry.